Acts chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day, and for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, 
in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, good morning, Genesis. How are you guys doing this morning? Uh, before we get into the sermon, I just want to note, I was having a conversation with Mike a couple weeks ago, and he mentioned, just offhand, that the, the, the record for the longest sermon at Genesis is an hour and 20 minutes. I hope you brought snacks, because I plan to beat that record. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Um, this morning, we're looking at Acts uh, 26 and the power of your story. Um, we all love stories, don't we? Uh, if you're kind of a nonfiction person, there's all sorts of genres. You've got your fantasy genre with orcs and elves and dwarves and wizards and, you know, you name it. You've got your sci-fi genre with spaceships and teleporters and laser cannons and it's, small, it's bigger on the inside and all that stuff. You might be into the spy genre with, you know covert espionage and James Bond style gadgets and all that kind of stuff. Um, Maybe you're into like the mystery genre where the author weaves a story and you're trying to figure it out and they let it, you know, they let you know who done it the last page of the book. And maybe you're one of those people that are like more of the hallmark genre where the young lady owns the flower store, or coffee shop, or bakery, or dot, 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 or she's inherited it, in a small, quaint little town, and there's problems, and she's going to lose the business, and the guy comes swooping in, and they fall in love, and at the end, it's happily ever after, and they decide to stay in the town, and there you go, right? We all love stories. In fact, over human history, Most people weren't literate. So where did we get our history from? We got it through stories. We got it through stories. Our passage this morning, we're looking again at the Apostle Paul and his continuing story here in the book of Acts. This morning, he is is standing before the Roman governor Festus, Uh, the Hebrew king, Agrippa, and a bunch of important guys from the town where they're at in Caesarea on the coast there. And what, what have we covered up to this point? Well, uh, ever since chapter 21, when Paul really gets into trouble, right? He goes into the temple and there's some Jews from Asia that recognize them, and man, they start an uproar. And there's a mob, and they start beating them up, right? And what happens? The Roman tr- Tribune, who is the kind of the leader over to the Roman cohort there in Jerusalem, about a thousand soldiers probably, they take him aside, question him, trying to figure out what's going on, and Paul defends himself there. 
but he's under arrest. He's not free. Then he goes before the Jewish, Jewish council. Right? He, he does that, and it doesn't go well. And so the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, they plan this assassination plot to try and kill Paul. And Paul's nephew hears about it, tells Paul. Paul says, you need to go tell the Roman Tribune what's going on. He tells the Roman Tribune, so they plan, okay, we're getting Paul out of town. So they take him up to Caesarea around a cohort of Roman soldiers so that nothing can happen to him. Once in Caesarea, he meets the Roman governor, who at that time was Felix. We heard a couple weeks ago, this dude was crazy, right? He, Nero even thought he was a little bit not right in the head. He was very violent. He was very violent to try and keep the peace. And he goes before Felix. And he, he defends himself before Felix, but Felix keeps him in prison for two years. One, to keep the peace with the Jews. Even though Paul was innocent, he kept him in jail for two years to keep peace with the Jews and so that maybe... Paul would bribe him to try and get out of jail. Paul doesn't do that. Then after two years, uh, Felix is seceded by Festus. And so Festus is like, okay, what's this story with this dude? And so he, Paul talks to Festus and again, defends himself. And Festus is like, well, you're innocent, but... Would you rather just go down to Jerusalem and talk to the, the Jewish leaders down there? And Paul's like, no, we're not doing that again. I'm a Roman citizen. I'm going to appeal to Caesar. Festus wanted to send him to Jerusalem because he didn't want to deal with the problem. He wanted to keep the peace. Again, trying to keep the peace. That was the big thing in Jerusalem is keeping the peace. That was your number one job. But Paul appeals to Caesar. So now Festus' hands are tied. He's got to send him to Rome to meet with Caesar. But around that time, the king of of the Jews, Herod Agrippa, shows up with his sister Bernice and Festus says, come come here, you got to hear this guy because he's appealed to Caesar. I've got to send him, but I don't know what to tell the emperor why this guy's in jail. So come and hear him and help me figure out what to write to him. And that's where our story picks up. He, Paul, this elderly man, probably bowed over, not only from age, but from continual beatings that he has succumbed to, sharing the gospel in chains, standing before the Roman governor, the king of the Jews, Herod Agrippa, and a bunch of important people from the town. And even though Agrippa didn't have any jurisdiction there, Festus, again, wanted his opinion. So as we look at this account in Acts chapter 26, Paul here uh, is going to share his story of how he came to know the Lord Jesus. The first account is in Acts chapter 9, which isn't an autobiography. It's a biography where the author of the book of Acts, Luke, writes it down. Then in Acts 22, Paul shares his story with some of the Jewish leaders. And that 
doesn't go over well, as we can expect. And now, here in 26, we see his story yet again. And I'm telling you, as I was studying for the sermon, I'm like, okay, God, what, what do I pull out of this passage that your people need to hear? I mean, when, you, when we study like New Testament texts in, in Ephesians and Galatians and Romans, lots of deep theological stuff. Here, it's just like, okay, Paul's telling a story. What can we get from his story the third time around? And I think this is, this, these, are some, these are some principles that we can pull out. Number one, he tailors his story to fit his audience. He tailors his story to fit his audience. If we look in Acts 26, look down at verses 2 and 3, Paul says, I consider myself fortunate that as before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And then again, down in 24. And, he, as, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. So he is addressing Herod Agrippa, and he is recognizing that Agrippa knows kind of what's going on. You know, Christianity has exploded in Jerusalem and in the region around there. So it's not like this is just kind of some little skirmish that's kind of happened in the corner that nobody knows about. This is a big thing, and Agrippa knows about it. And so what he does is he's going to tailor his story to fit his audience. We see this in, again, in, we see this in Acts 17. If you were here with us in Acts 17, Paul is in Athens and he's walking around Athens and he sees tons of statues of idols that the Greeks and Romans worshipped. And it troubled him as it should have. And what's he do? He goes to Mars Hill and he talks to the, the people there and he, said, he, he tailors his message to the Greeks. And he says, I saw a statue that you guys had in your town to the unknown God. And what does he do? He then introduces him to Jesus through that context. So Paul is tailoring his story to fit his audience. We'll see a little bit more of that in a minute. So the takeaway is when sharing our story, most of the time we're going to know who we're talking to at least a little bit. You know, unless you're a street preacher and you're just out on the corner preaching the gospel, you know who you're sharing your story with. You know maybe some of the struggles they're going through or, you know, what they deal with. And you can, you know, as the Lord guides you, you can, you can tailor what you share with them to meet, to meet the needs of what they need to hear. Second point. First point is he tailors the story to fit his audience. Second point, he points his story to Jesus. And we see this from verse 4 
all the way through verse 23. And I'm not going to read it all. We heard it a minute ago. But I want to break it down in three sections. First, before his conversion. In verses 4 through 11, Paul shares what he was like before he met Jesus. He was raised and lived as part of the strictest part of Judaism, the Pharisees. They're the ones that memorized the first five books of the Bible. That's a lot, if you don't know. That's a lot. And plus all the additional laws they poured on top of that. And they sought to live by those. He believed what the Pharisees taught, mainly that God raises from the dead. He says he was convinced that he should do many things to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He had heard about the sect, he saw what was going on, and he felt that he needed to do something about it. So what did he do? He arrested him. He locked him up, threw him in jail. He voted for the death penalty for these Christians. When they were convicted of death, he was one of the ones that cast the vote for their death. He punished them and tried to get them to blaspheme and talk and, and say things that weren't true about God and Christ. And the one statement that really, really jumped out at me, and I found it interesting, down in verse 11, he says, I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Raging fury. He was crazy mad. And that, he just poured that into his persecution. Of note, that crazy mad is the same root, Greek root word, is what we see down in verse 24 when Festus says, You're out of your mind. Same thing, Paul. He was out of his mind mad at Christians and wanted to do something about it. And so, what happens? And then we get to his conversion to verses 12 through 18. His story. His story of how he met Jesus. And how everything changed for him after that. Here, as in chapter 9 and in chapter 22, he shares, he's on the road to Damascus by orders of the chief priest to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem. But Paul tweaks some things here. And it's not that he's lying. He's just, he, he adds a little information that he hasn't shared before. And he withholds some information because it's just not pertinent to the conversation. Here we see, he specifically says at midday, a light from heaven brighter than the sun. In Acts 22, he says it's at noon. Shares a light from heaven. In Acts chapter 9, a light from heaven. Here he specifically says it was brighter than the sun. Okay, what does that mean? Well, if you've ever been close to the equator, Haiti or another country that's closer to the equator than St. Louis, at midday when the sun's up, it is bright and it is hot. And you shield your eyes. Paul's making the point that it is brighter than the sun. He doesn't say that he's blinded, but he wants to make sure that uh, this wasn't that the sun was just bright. And we kind of, you know, no, this was a light from heaven that was so, it was brighter than the sun that you've ever seen. They're knocked off their horses and he says here, Paul alone hears a voice in Hebrew. Um, From the other chapters, 
We know that his companions heard something, but they weren't, they didn't know what it was. They didn't hear, it was either a noise or they, if they thought it was an audible voice, they didn't understand it. Paul alone understood the voice. And then following that, he condenses kind of what happens next. We know from chapter 9 and chapter 22, he's blinded, he goes to Damascus. Uh, the Lord Jesus speaks to Ananias and sends Ananias to Paul to heal him of his blindness and to instruct him. Here Paul just condenses it down and says that Jesus said all this to me. Look down in uh, we'll start in verse 15. And I said Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul got that via Ananias from the Lord Jesus. So when Paul here in Acts 26 says, Jesus said said this to me, well, he did via Ananias. So he wasn't lying. He was just keeping Ananias out of the story, probably because it 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 wasn't important for the conversation. Festus and Agrippa probably had no idea who Ananias was, so why even throw another name into the into the pot? Maybe he was trying to protect him. We don't know. But Paul, again, he tailors his story to fit his, his uh, audience. And then after conversion, what's he do? Verse 19, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He was not disobedient to what he saw and what he heard. He starts proclaiming what Moses and the prophets proclaimed, naming that the Messiah, Jesus, must suffer, rise from the dead, and that everyone must repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. And where does he do this? First, where he was at, in Damascus. And then in Jerusalem. And then, if you've been with us the last, I don't know, few months, he's been going all around Asia Minor, which is now present-day Turkey, over to the coast of Greece and up and down Greece, planting churches. He is not disobedient to this heavenly vision. So what can we take away from that? What can we take away from having our story point to Jesus? Mainly that your story is not ultimately about you. It's not ultimately about me. The purpose of your story, the purpose of my story, is to point to the transforming power of his story. Right? And then, third point. He tailors the story to fit his audience. He points people to Jesus. And then, third, he invites the hearers into his, into his story. Not into Paul's story, but into his story. Look at Verses 27 through 29. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? 
I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I, except for these chains. Really simple. As we share our story, we've got to invite them into his story. As you're building relationships with people, maybe you've already got relationships and you're praying for them and looking how to share the gospel, it could be as easy as initially inviting them to the Genesis bonfire we have in the fall or other uh, activities that are a little more low-key, a little bit more laid back. Maybe it's if you're having a, a gospel conversation with them, you invite them to continue the conversation you know, at another point in time. You know, hey, let's meet for an hour for coffee, and you get into this conversation. I would love to continue this conversation with you. you, know, do you would you like that? Can we meet again? Maybe it's inviting them to Bible study, and maybe it's just inviting them here to church. That's up to you and how the Lord's leading you as you share your story and invite people into his story. And ultimately, we want to invite them to put their faith in Christ because it doesn't matter how many bonfires they go to, how many Bible studies they go to, how many times they come to church. That doesn't save them. It's just hopefully, you know, they have a good time at the bonfire. They learn some stuff at Bible study and you know, maybe they get saved here at church, but really, we, ultimately, we have to invite them to repent and believe. Now, let's be honest. Can we be honest? Let me be honest with you. My story, I often look at my story and think, kind of boring. It really is kind of boring. You hear all these great stories of people that were hooked on cocaine and meth and you name it, any kind of illicit drug. Or maybe they were in a gang and gangbangers. <clears throat> maybe they robbed people and carjacked people. They were in prison. Maybe they were atheists that just hated Christians. The list goes on and on. We think what these huge monstrous sins are and then Christ saves them and we think, wow, that's amazing. And then we look at our story and we think, man, mine's not that great. It's kind of boring. You know, I'm not, my conversion story isn't like Paul's. I didn't get knocked off a horse by a blinding light. I never struggled with heroin, coke, or whatever. I didn't run around with the wrong crowd. I never robbed anyone. I was a good person. I was, my life was kind of boring. Can I just tell you this, church? Your story of how Jesus saved you is just as miraculous as what we consider the wow stories. Just as miraculous. Don't let Satan tell you otherwise. Don't let it happen. How can I say that with confidence? Because each of our stories is essentially all start the exact same way. They all start the same way. It doesn't matter what sins we're talking about. 
They all start the same way. One, we start, we start as his enemy. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So before Christ, we are his enemies. Two, before Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And three, we're all blinded by the God of this world. Second Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds, the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We all start out the exact same way. And when we repent of our sins and we put our faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus, we are all saved the same way. Romans 5.11, he reconciles us. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He makes us alive, Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he makes us see. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, which we just read. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We see that just, just as much in verse 18 of our text this morning. Paul is sent to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So again, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're saved as an adult and you've gone 20, 30, 40, 50 years of living a sinful lifestyle, doing whatever, or you come in faith as a child and you're seven years old. It doesn't matter. We all start out the same. We are dead, we are enemies, and we're blinded. The miracle is that God takes a dead heart and he makes it alive. He takes blind eyes and he makes them see. And he takes his enemy and he makes them adopted children and he calls them his friends. We are all like that when we repent and put our faith in Jesus Christ. So, I think I would be remiss if we talk about the power of our story and I don't share my story. So, I'm going to take a couple minutes and briefly share my story. I was born in St. Louis. We moved to Eureka when I was probably three, four-ish years old. I don't remember. I was pretty young. But I remember there wasn't Jack Squat in Eureka. There was a couple stop signs, a couple fast food restaurants, and six flags, and that was about it. 
Um, growing up, my dad was a Eureka police officer. Uh, my parents didn't go to church. They did send me to Sunday school, interestingly enough, when I was very young, five, six, to the Methodist church in town. And I remember one Sunday, I just told him, I don't want to go anymore. And it wasn't because I didn't like it. It's because I was always the last one picked up. And I hated being the last kid standing out there. It's like, ah, no, I'm done. And they're like, okay, whatever. Um, If you know me very well, you know that I'm more of an analytical kind of person. I'm a black and white kind of person, ones and zeros kind of person. I'm a rule follower kind of person. So I didn't get into a lot of trouble growing up. I really didn't. One, because I'm a rule follower, and two, because my dad was a cop. Um, Some children go the other way, but I didn't. Kid moved in down the street when I was around eight years old, so around third grade, he became my best friend. His name was Aaron. And I spent many a Friday night over at his house. We'd have sleepovers and, you know, whatever. I think that's when the Atari came out, so we would play Centipede and Pac-Man and whatever. But I remember one night we're sitting there and he tells me, we start talking about God. I don't remember how we got on the conversation, but he said, you know, if God showed up right now in his full glory, we would fall over dead instantaneously. And I'm like, wow, okay. And I don't remember how the conversation ended. I just remember that point. And then nothing really else came of that conversation. I know I went to VBS at the church that his family went to one summer it was like a week long. I remember getting a little, I mean, it was little, little orange Gideon's New Testament that now if I tried to open it and read it, it'd be like, there's writing on that page? You know, the print's so tiny. I remember memorizing John 3.16 at that VBS. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But again, nothing ever came from that. And then, in August of 1987, that friend of mine was killed in a car accident over here on Antire Road. And when I heard about it, needless to say, I was shook. And I remember going home that night, because I worked at a gas station where we had a tow truck, and then our tow truck was one of the tow trucks that went out to handle the accident. And when I heard it was him, I remember going home, and I remember sitting in my room and asking God why. And I remember taking that little Gideon's New Testament and chucking it across the room. I was mad. I didn't understand why. But... When we had his memorial service, I remember sitting in the back of the auditorium and thinking, you know what, I really need to get right with God because I could have been in that car. He had called me earlier that day and said, hey, I'm going to the mall, you want to go? And I was like, sorry, I got to work. So I could have been dead too. I was thinking, man, I, I, I need to get right with God. I need to start going to church. I need to, da, 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 da. I need to, but did I do that? No, I didn't start. I didn't do any of that, but I knew I needed to. Fast forward a couple months, October 1987. You can come and ask me why I remember this. It's really weird. I'm not going to add it now. October 1987, 
Sunday afternoon. I'm standing outside shooting baskets, you know, just Sunday afternoon, nice out, shooting baskets. And an older neighbor, when I say older, he was older than me, he wasn't old. He was probably six, seven years older than me, I think. Came up, said, hey, we're going to go play football down the junior high field, which is right here. The junior high field was right here in 87. The junior high was the buildings behind Super Smokers, Path, right here, Cinder Track football field. We're going up to play tag football. You want to come? Sure, why not? And it was him and a family from another house, the other direction from me, and a bunch of people from the church that they went to out in Valley Park. And every time they would get together and play football, they would play for a while, and then they would take a break and share the gospel. And then we would continue the game. Heard the gospel again. I still didn't get it. I still didn't get it. I remember having a conversation with one of the guys down the road one time. We're sitting in a big sky blue Ford Econo van, Econo line van. And we're sitting on a bench seat, and he's like, yeah, Faith in Jesus is like me trusting that the seat's going to hold you up. And I'm like, of course it's going to hold you up. That seat is bolted to the body of the van, which is bolted to the frame and that's connected to the wheels that's touching the ground. Why wouldn't it hold you up? I didn't get it. I didn't get it. But after the game... The guy that invited, that invited me to go play football, his name was Brad. He said, hey, Tuesday night at our church, we have this youth group. We play volleyball, we sing some songs, hear a message. Would you want to come out? I'm like, hmm, maybe, we'll see. Tuesday night rolls around, I get a call from Eric, another guy that lived the other direction down the street. And he says, hey, are you, you still interested in going? Well, I had no excuse. I didn't have any homework. You know, nothing like that. I thought, sure, I'll go. Fine, whatever. To say I went, so I went. Can I tell you that night changed my life forever? We went and we played volleyball. Had fun. We sang some crazy camp-type songs. And then the gospel was shared again. But that time, I got it. And it wasn't because I was smart all of a sudden. It's because Jesus opened my eyes. Jesus took my dead heart and made it alive. And I understood the gospel. I understood that I needed to repent of my sin and put my faith in him. So I'm going to give you a little demonstration. Some of us, some of you, you walk through life like this. That's Jesus. And you're like this. Don't want to have anything to do with him. Some of us are like, yeah, okay. I know who Jesus is. I'm, you know, I'm cool with the story, whatever. Some of you are like, yeah, I trust in Jesus. Yeah, it's all good. Let me tell you, none of that is faith in Jesus. This is faith in Jesus. If this stool breaks, I'm going to fall on my hiney. This is what it looks like to put your faith in Jesus. I would stand on this, but I'm not crazy. That is faith in Jesus, folks. That is what he calls us all to. 
that Tuesday night, I put my faith in Christ. I didn't understand deep theological terms. I didn't understand any theological terms. I just know that I was lost. And then I was found. Count Zinzendorf says, he's a bishop from the Moravian Church from the 1700s, said, preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. And that is my passion, and that should be all of our passions, is to preach Christ, whether that is on a stage in front of a church body or whether it's just you and a friend. In 200 years, if God tarries, nobody's going to know who I was. And I am perfectly fine with that. I want people to know who Jesus is. Casting Crowns put it this way in their song, Only Jesus. I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. And I, I've only got one life to live. I'll let every second point to him. Only Jesus. Matthew West, in his song, My Story, Your Glory, puts it this way. My story, your glory. My pain, your purpose. My mess, your message. In all things, I know you're working. One life, one, one mission. One reason why I'm living. All for you and not for me. My story, your glory. That is the power of our stories, the point to Jesus. In a minute, we're going to be celebrating communion. What is communion? We eat some bread, we drink a little juice. It's not to fill our bellies, it's to remind us of the price that Jesus paid for our sin. It's to remind me of October 13, 1987, when on that night he saved me from myself. So if you're a believer this morning, I would encourage you, think of your story and realize just how miraculous it is. Just how miraculous it is. And give thanks to the one who made it possible, the one who continues to make it possible, the one who continues to save lost sinners. We're going to have some people over here to your left. If you're struggling with anything, maybe it's some type of besetting habitual sin that you can't can't seem to conquer. Maybe it's something that you're struggling with you haven't told anybody. And maybe today, for the very first time, you realize that you are dead and you need to trust Jesus. You need to repent and trust Jesus. We'll be over here so that we can talk to you and we can pray with you. As the band comes up, I just want to invite you right now, examine your hearts. If you are here today and you have never, you've heard the story a million times and you haven't put your faith in Christ, I want to encourage you to do that this morning. It's not too late. Today is the day of salvation. 
His kindness leads us to repentance, and he is giving you another opportunity to hear it and to respond. Lord Jesus, we bow before you this morning. And I am humbled that you would allow me to get up and open your word to your people. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just move amongst us and do what only you can do, that you would convict of sin and righteousness and judgment, that you would bring dead hearts alive, that you would reconcile enemies, make them children and friends, and open their eyes to see the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Lord, for us that are believers, if we are struggling with sin, to help us to repent well. Help us to confess our sins one to another. And then walk in faith and obedience to you. Help us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. Lord, we just pray, I pray that you would be glorified. You would be magnified. That you would increase and I would decrease. That you would be magnified on the altar of my life. Because you are worthy of it all. You alone are worthy of honor and glory, power and praise. Lord, forgive us where we go astray. Help us help us to see the truth and repent and follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.